We might think that the easiest place in the world for us to live this sermon that we've been studying over the past month is right here. Surely the easiest relationships that we have in which to follow Jesus' mountain message is right here in these relationships. And yet my experience has been that we Christians can watch the Sermon on the Mount right here as well as we do in so many other places in our lives. I have just heard terrible stories about relationships between brethren, some even ending in physical violence. How does that happen? Throughout this month, we've heard some great lessons about how to live the sermon at home, in our marriages, as parents, about how to live the sermon on the job, about how to live the sermon at school. But our study would be incomplete if we didn't talk about how the sermon ought to impact us right here in this relationship that we have as a local congregation. And I am convinced that to the degree that we as individual Christians and we as members of this body live the Sermon on the Mount in these relationships, to that degree we will be a vibrant and living body of the Lord, accomplishing His will. So this morning I want us to look at that. How does the sermon impact us here in the local congregation? Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we humble ourselves before you because you are awesome and amazing and powerful. And we simply cannot fathom just your greatness. We're mostly thankful for the forgiveness that you've given us. We are amazed that you sent your Son to die for us and allow us to have our sins washed away because we are so sinful. We have committed atrocities and iniquity and turned from your will. And we're amazed that you have sacrificed your Son so that all that could be wiped away so that we might be with you forever. And we're thankful for your church that you established, that universal body of believers who submit to you. And we're thankful for your plan regarding local congregations. We're thankful for this congregation of which we're a part here. And thankful for the congregations that exist from which we have guests today. And we're thankful for the help that you have provided us through our relationship with your children in these churches. Father, we thank you so much. Your wisdom is amazing. We love you and we thank you for loving us. It's through your Son that we pray. Amen. First thing that I want us to consider as we look at the local, uh, the local church and how the Sermon on the Mount impacts it, I just want us to think for a moment about what is the local congregation? The Sermon on the Mount, I think, does give us some indication of what that is. If we look in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, the sermon begins by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The persecuted in Matthew 5.10, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. In Matthew 5 and verse 19, Whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments shall be least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever obeys and keeps them and teaches them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. In chapter 5 and verse 20, Jesus said, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10, we are to pray that the kingdom come and spread throughout the earth. We recognize, of course, the kingdom is here. Talk a little bit more about that tonight. In Matthew 6 and verse 33, it says that we're supposed to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Passages like Matthew chapter 16 
And verse 18 teaches about the kingdom of heaven and Christ's church. In Matthew 16 and verse 18, Jesus told Peter, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Christ's church is the physical manifestation, is the visible manifestation on this earth of the kingdom of heaven. And that says something about the local church as well. Now please understand, I recognize and know that the kingdom of heaven is not the sum total of all the faithful congregations. The kingdom of heaven is the collectivity of faithful individual Christians. I know that. But when we take a look at this body of believers, a local congregation, what we are to see is a picture of the kingdom of heaven in microcosm. Here is a collectivity of people that are seeking the will of God. And that's exactly what we are supposed to see the local congregation as. A manifestation of the kingdom of God here on the earth. Therefore, when folks see us and see us as a part of a local congregation, they're not just seeing us going to something several times a week. They should see that we are a part of something greater. They should see that, that our citizenship is someplace else. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. Paul wrote there, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our membership as part of this body demonstrates that we may be Americans, we might be Tennesseans, some folks here are lucky enough to be Texans, but more importantly, we're Christians a part of the kingdom of heaven. But that's not all that we learn about the local congregation. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13, Jesus spoke about His disciples saying, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are the light of the world. We talk about measuring light in lumens, like with our data projector, or watts when we think about a light bulb. Have you ever heard the measurement of light, the candle power? Somebody has a certain candle power. That's a measure of light. Here we are as individual Christians. We're candles, lamps. And in the local congregation, we have come together. Each of us is our single candle on the stand that has been placed in order to to light the entire house. And we've gathered together in a group. Why? To increase our candle power. A beacon in a dark world. We need to understand this. I recognize that we gather together to find comfort and solace because of all that we endure in the world, but we have to understand the local congregation is not the place where the lights of the world gather together to go hide in a dark cave to protect themselves from the dark world. Rather, we gather here together in order to encourage one another, in order to brighten our lights, in order to increase the candle power, in order to turn on the light that we're supposed to be in the world. That's why we're here so that we can increase that light. But at the same time, as we increase that light, 
within those same verses, we learn that we're going to be the city set on a hill. The city that everyone wants to attack. The city that has that strategic location that people want to have. And so they're going to persecute. They're going to fight. They're going to try to overcome because we have what they want and they don't like it. We're like that city. And there's no way that we can be the light of the world without being the city set on the hill. If our light is shining bright enough to impact the world and to influence them, then we're going to be the city that cannot be hidden. We're going to be the city that folks want to attack. We're going to be the city that folks want to overcome. That's just the way it's going to be. But when it happens, we recognize from chapter 5 and verse 10 of the sermon, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When we are the light of the world, we will be the city set on the hill and we will be attacked and we will be persecuted. But that is when we are blessed. Because that is when we are truly the kingdom of heaven. That is when the kingdom of heaven is truly ours. What's the foundation for the local congregation? Upon what are we built? According to Matthew chapter 7, according to Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. The local church is a group of people that have chosen to take the narrow path the group of people that have chosen to follow the difficult road. We've made that choice. And in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform any miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. The local congregation is a group of people who have chosen to walk on the narrow road, who have decided that it's not good enough just to call Jesus Lord, but we've got to actually do what He says. And because of that, we have only one foundation. And that is Jesus Christ through His Word. In Matthew 7, and verse 24, it says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. We've talked about that in our individual lives. We've talked about that as families. We need to understand it as congregations. If we are going to withstand the storms in this world, then a congregation must be founded upon Jesus' Word. That is our only foundation. And because of that, because of that, we're going to look a little different. We're going to be different from the majority of congregations that exist in the world. Because, because Jesus' Word is our only foundation, we will not have creeds. We will not have catechisms. We will not have confessions of faith. We will have God's Word and God's Word alone. We do not have to have legislatures which we have choose and decide what will govern our congregations. We do not have denominational organizations that tells us how we're supposed to act and behave as a church. We will have God's Word and God's Word alone. We will remember 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. We don't need anything else. 
This is our foundation. This is all that the local congregation needs. It doesn't need a denominational hierarchy. It doesn't need another book to tell us how to live and act and teach. We need Jesus and His Word. And that's all. Because only then will we withstand the storms instead of being tossed about by every wind of doctrine that comes along. How do we relate to God in the local congregation? That's why we're here, right? Because we want to connect to God. As we took a look around at the churches in our world today, we might be tempted to believe that God established churches in order to fulfill our every whim and desire. For so many local congregations, worship is entertainment. Fellowship is food. Teaching tickles itching ears. Evangelism is social welfare. It's all about the fleshly needs and desires. It's all about bringing God to my level and wrapping Him around my finger to accomplish what I want and make me feel good. The Sermon on the Mount demonstrates something different. How do we relate to God? Matthew 5 and verse 3, I think, demonstrates the beginning of that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We are the impoverished, the broken. We learned as we studied this in our series this this month, that that word for poverty, for poor, the root word actually means to crouch, because that's what we're doing as we're begging We have nothing. We are nothing. There's no way that we can come to God and make Him owe us anything. We're like that that Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, 27 who has to say, yes, Lord, but even the dogs hope to get some crumbs from the Master's table. We don't gather together here to relax and be entertained. We don't come here to have our fleshly desires fulfilled and our every whim met. We must not come here because somehow we are the spiritual elite. We're gathering together to be some kind of spiritual country club. We're here because we are sick with sin and sick of sin. And the only place we can turn is to the Lord so that we can find His healing mercy. Begging Him for it. And gathering together with others who are doing the exact same thing. That's why we're here. As we consider this relationship, one of the things that I hear over and over again from from brethren, and I think rightfully so, is the complaint about how hard it is for us to let our guard down. For us to be able to let one another know exactly what we're dealing with and where we are in our walk with the Lord and overcoming sin, confessing to one another. We come here and we meet together and we're all dressed in our finest clothes and we put on our finest smiles and we look like everything is just wonderful and it's just great. And sometimes we might think that we come here because we are the righteous. 
That's not why we're here. Matthew 5 and verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're not here because we are the righteous, but because we want righteousness. Because we've fallen short. And because God has established local congregations to help us grow and have the righteousness that we so desire. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why do we gather together? Why are we a part of this relationship? Because we need others to help us pursue this righteousness that we so desire. It is so sad for folks today to have the idea that they can have their own religion, they can have their own connection with God, and they don't need God's children. There's a reason God established local churches. And that, brethren, is because we need each other. And we relate to God and connect to God by connecting to one another. And as we pursue that righteousness, we need to remember that we're looking for excellence and not minimum requirements. We're not going to read all of Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 48, but hopefully you've read that several times this month anyway. If you're a guest here and you haven't been a part of our focus, let me encourage you. Read Matthew 5, 21 through 48. What we learn about the Pharisees is they weren't concerned about righteousness as excellence. They wanted minimum requirements. The law says, don't kill. I won't. But I'll hate your guts. I'll call you names. I might even slap you around a little bit, but I won't kill. Because that's the minimum requirement. The law says, don't commit adultery. I won't. But I'll lust and I'll fantasize. The law says, keep your vows to the Lord. So I'll just make sure that I make my vows by earth or heaven so that I can lie with wanting abandon. The law says, love your neighbor. That's good, because I sure want to hate my enemy. And what did they do? They drew lines. They reduced it down. They tried to find the absolute minimum requirement and say, what is good enough for me to get to be a part of the kingdom of heaven? But what Jesus demonstrated is that is not the righteousness that we're supposed to have. Remember, our righteousness, Matthew 5.20, is to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. Our righteousness is not about just enough to get inside the gate. Our righteousness is wanting to be covered over in the kingdom of God. Fulfilling every intent of God's commands. And therefore, we don't argue with one another or with God about how many times we have to be at the assembly or classes. We don't argue about how much prayer we have to do or how much time we have to spend studying the Bible. We don't argue about how much time do I actually have to spend with my brethren. We don't argue about how much evangelism do I actually have to do. Just tell me the line that I have to cross so I can get into heaven and I'll do that much, but don't expect any more because that's not the kind of righteousness we're looking for. When we're relating to God and His body, we want excellence in righteousness. We hunger and thirst for it and we're not interested and just crossing the line and getting inside the gate. We want to be thick in the middle of God and His kingdom and His righteousness. Doing everything we possibly can because of the love that He has demonstrated for us. That's how we relate to God. But how do we relate to others? 
John Maxwell in his book, Winning with People, says that when you take a look at the world, the enti- this is really good, so I want to make sure you're listening. The entire world, with one minor exception, is made up of other people. And that's also true with the congregation. The entire congregation, with one minor exception, is made up of other people. Look around you. I, I didn't mean that rhetorically. I meant really. Look around you. What do you see? Other people. And there's more of them than of us. That ought to tell us something. This relationship here is not about me. It's about all those other people. So how do I relate to them? The first thing that I have to recognize is that my relationship within this congregation is not about seeking my own personal glory. In Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, Jesus said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And then the following verses, He talked about being generous. He talked about prayer. And then He talked about fasting. And He said we shouldn't be doing those things to be seeking our own glory. How many times have I heard people complain, I don't get to leave the public prayer enough. I don't get to wait on the table enough. I don't get to leave singing enough. I don't get to preach enough. I don't get to do all these things enough. And so often, that kind of complaint begins with a heart that is seeking personal glory. Brethren, I'm going to tell you, we don't need more people to lead us in prayer behind this microphone. We need more people who are going into their prayer closets and praying for us. We don't need more people who will get up behind this microphone and lead us in song. We need more people who will sing of the grace and praise of God to the world and everyone they know. We don't need more people who will stand behind this table and lead us and serve us in the Lord and His Supper. We need more people who outside of this building will sacrifice themselves to serving one another and serving others, whether anybody else knows about it or not. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light shine before the world so that they may see your Father and glorify Him. It's not about glorifying Him. And we remember Romans chapter 12. I believe it's about verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. It's about giving preference to others in honor. Not about me receiving glory and honor. We need to address problems quickly. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21, Jesus said, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. 
Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge is the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the very last cent. We address problems quickly. We're among people. Guess what? People have problems. It's always going to be, it's always been that way and it's always going to be that way. But what we cannot do is just allow those problems to go on. We've got to address those quickly and resolve them. We don't allow our anger to seethe unresolved. We don't allow the problems to just linger and grow and go on. And how do we deal with them? By going to the person. We don't go to the elders, to the preacher, or our favorite brother or sister in Christ. If we've got a problem with somebody, we go to them. I would hope and think that if you've got a problem with me, you could come to me. I'll tell you what, there is nothing worse for a congregation than for elders evangelist meetings to have to be and when we need to let you know that somebody came and complained to us. Come to me. It certainly shouldn't be that I have to go to the elders and say, well, brother, somebody came and complained to me about y'all. Elders and evangelists aren't here to do your job of going to people with whom you have problems. And if you realize that you're the one that's caused the problem, don't think that it's enough to just reconcile with God. Lay your altar down and before you reconcile, excuse me, lay your offering down at the altar before you reconcile with God. Go to the folks that you harmed and reconcile with them first. And then come back to God. Seeking reconciliation there. Resolve the problems quickly. Matthew 5 and verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy ought to be our watchword. Mercy is not just forgiveness. Mercy is the idea of relieving the affliction of those who are suffering. We need to be looking out and finding those who are suffering and doing whatever we can to relieve that. Whether it means visiting the widows and orphans in their distress, whether it means... Visiting the sick and the shut-in. Whether it means encouraging the discouraged. Teaching the weak. We need to be looking out and seeing the suffering. Not waiting until it gets announced. Not waiting until somebody says, well, we've got this issue here and we're going to get together a group and could you all meet with me after, after the prayer up here in the, in the front pew. We need to be looking out for those things. But mercy does include forgiveness. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, Jesus said, If you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. We've got to be a forgiving people. And it's so sad in, in congregations, the schisms that brethren will allow between themselves because they will refuse to forgive those even when they repent. They don't want them to repent. They don't want to forgive them. And such a sad thing that is. We need to remember that we're a group of people that want folks to go to heaven. And I think that's the point in Matthew 7, beginning at verse 1. Don't judge that shall not be judged. For in the way you judge, you'll be judged. And by your standard of measure, will be measured to you. 
Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me talk, uh, take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The whole point there is that we're supposed to be a group of people that aren't looking around to find something wrong with everybody, but trying to help folks go to heaven, trying to help one another. I'll tell you what, I guarantee you, you look long and hard enough at everybody here, and you'll find a reason why every single one of us ought to go to hell. But we're not here to find all the reasons why every one of us ought to go to hell. We're here to help each other grow so that we'll go to heaven. And we ought to be people who are meeting in the middle for forgiveness and reconciliation to help with our problems so that we can help one another go to heaven. We're concerned about relationships, not rights. There in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 38, Jesus said, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That whole section is talking about our relationships. And we will fight tooth and toenail for our rights. It's happened to all of us. We've all been wronged. We've all been wronged by a brother or sister in Christ. We won't tolerate that. Surely God doesn't expect me to endure that. I've got to stand up for my rights. And I've got to let everyone know that I am the victim here. Then I remember 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 7, where Paul said, Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? What is more important? The fact that I can prove to the world that I have, or the brethren, that I have been wronged, that I am the victim? Or is it more important that I maintain a relationship in which I can help people go to heaven? Which is more important? We don't gather here to defend our rights, we gather here to strengthen our relationships so that we can help each other go to heaven. And no doubt, all of this has to be governed by the golden rule, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12. Whatever you want others to do to you, do that to them. Do you want forgiveness and mercy? Then be forgiving and merciful. Do you want folks to help you go to heaven? Then help others go to heaven. Do you want folks to be kind to you and think about you? Then be kind to others and think about them. It's a wonderful summary. There's so many of these things in the Sermon on the Mount that we wonder about the specifics and how, what, what do they mean literally and how, how far do we take them. 
what a great rule of thumb this is. If we just treat others the way we want to be treated, and all the full meaning of that statement, so much else of the sermon will really just take care of itself. How will we succeed? Ask, seek, and knock. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 7, Jesus said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. If we want success, if we want to be a body of people that represent the kingdom of God to the world, if we want to be a body of people that are relating to God properly, if we want to be a body of people that are relating to one another properly so that the light of God can shine to the world and other folks will come and be a part of His family and God will be glorified, We've got to rely on God. We've got to ask, seek, and knock. We remember Ephesians 3 and verse 20. To Him is able, who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. That means we better ask. And when we ask, God will respond. And the hand of the Lord will be with us. It's not just asking. It's also seeking and knocking. It's asking and then acting. It's asking that the Lord's will be done and then it's doing the Lord's will. And when we do that, we'll be successful. The local congregation has not been established so that God can be wrapped around our fingers providing every little thing that we ever want. God established local congregations so that we might be His holy offspring, strengthening one another so that we might glorify Him and go to heaven. So that we might be that manifestation of His kingdom right here. How are we doing?